0: Can we, can we get going? No, 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 just a couple more okay. questions, guys. Um, do you think the music's developed in any specific way since, since the mm-hmm. early hits? I mean, the first album meant, like, you sold billions of it, right? Not exactly. <laughs> Plenty of. Did you take some time and say, well, we
1: can change this a bit, go and... Yeah, we changed it a bit, it all went terribly wrong, and now we're so back on we to the commercial it to stuff. What
0: it was before, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's more of an American than a, than a European sound? Well, we did in the first place. I mean, when we, when we first got signed, we were signed by Hedge the American the side of the company because we thought we're, we're never going to get anywhere in England because we sound American. And then what happened was it did very well in England and never really broke in America. So, no, not really. I, I think it could work in either place. Somebody um. waving to you down there, something about like hurrying up. No, yeah, I just are right, the, is. in the wrong time. Oh is that so what that right means? Up, well listen, yeah. no, 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 just so, a crop. This would be very nice further. Um, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm Like um,
2: like, um Ta-da. This is 80s Audio commentary. Go west by go west with Peter Cox.
0: Welcome to 80sography and another audio commentary This time for a massively underrated album of the 80s. I think it's aged beautifully Like the best 80s albums Very much of its time And yet timeless At the same time It's the eponymous first Go West album With I guess the singer-songwriter of Go West Mr Peter Cox I really enjoyed this chat An unusual Sunday morning chat Don't usually do them at that time And he was great company So if you're listening to this as an audio commentary It's a bit of preliminary chat to set the album up and then you'll get a 3-2-1 countdown to sync up. If you're not, then just enjoy this interview with Peter Cox of Go West.
2: The interview starts now.
0: Go West was formed in 82, is that correct?
1: Yeah, um, I've been uh, a friend of Richard's for some time. I think the 82 date refers to our first publishing deal, with which advance we bought uh, various bits of kit to improve our theoretically to improve our songwriting
0: okay so at what point did you start the songwriting with richard
1: um year-wise i'm not sure let's see i was working in residency at a mecca ballroom um, club in sheffield Uh, when I first started spending any meaningful time with Richard. I mean, we were just, you know, hanging out then, really. Richard had a job um, at what they call a free sheet and advertising paper down in Hampton, which is closer to my my original stomping ground, Hampton in Middlesex or Surrey or whatever it is now. Uh, And every other week he would drive up to Sheffield with his car loaded with all the videos uh, and records that he had been spending his time watching and listening to in the interim. And we would then compare notes and listen to music and drink cheap wine. Really? Do you remember the first song you wrote together? Yeah, it was a thing called Pretending, I think, but which has not seen the light of day in terms of public consumption. I think we were already working on Haunted, which made the first Go West album in a very early stage. But um, what's been interesting over the lockdown period and the recent release of a Go West box set revisitation of that first album is my realisation of how long all these songs were in process. For example, Ed Sheeran, you know, we're led to believe writes a song in a day. And I know that in Nashville, writers do several writing sessions in a day. But with Richard and myself, our songs were in process for a long time, you know, to have an original idea and then go back to it a couple of weeks later, we close our eyes was recorded, I don't know, three or four times in different forms before the version that's on the album.
0: Yeah, we'll get to it. We Close Our Eyes because there is no demo of We Close Our Eyes on the box set, is there? Is that because there wasn't one available
1: well, we when we first started writing together, we were using something called a Porter Studio, which enabled the user to record four tracks onto a cassette. You could also mix down and overdub and so on. It was pretty primitive by today's standards, but it did enable us to at least record a vocal, for example, over a keyboard or a guitar or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't think either Richard or I would... Be very keen for anyone to hear those Porter Studio demos at this point. So you still have them then, do you? Uh, I don't. Uh, Richard is uh, a real hoarder, refuses ever to throw anything away, (laughs) even though those things can often be difficult to find at later date when you want, for example, uh, the works in progress for what became our Dancing on the Couch album, because there is a box set of that album in the works. And, of course, everyone is very keen to try and find additional material, like the demos, for example, which we are led to believe are somewhere in Richard's lot. Uh, yet to be
2: rediscovered.
1: <laughs> so that's interesting. That um, so I assume the record company wanted that demo
0: for "We Close Our Eyes," and it's like you were like, "No, no, quality control. We're not letting that." get
1: out to be heard no i that's not really accurate i don't know if there is a porter studio demo of it i'm sure they would have liked to have had it but yeah it was as i've said previously um the original version of we close our eyes was uh, referencing loosely the doobie brothers and that west coast american sound which is what richard and i were listening to a lot at the time and it was a much more relaxed mid-tempo kind of thing didn't have the horn riff or the synth horn riff at the start of the song that everybody knows Mm -hmm. now. So yes, I suppose it might have a degree of interest, but I wouldn't know where to lay my hands on that particular recording. Right and and was there
0: a demo of pretending your first song that you wrote together
1: Again that's that theoretically exists on a cassette somewhere in a in a Porter Studio form but again yeah Richard might possibly have it I don't even know how he would you'd obviously need a Porter Studio on which to play that cassette back uh, yeah, and I'm not yes. sure if, it, if any of those things actually exist anymore well, Get him on eBay or like, get him searching because I I want to hear that first song that's that's quite
0: a momentous thing isn't it the first song you write with your writing partner I think yeah, it'd be nice to
1: have a record of that sometime. Uh, yeah, do you could you like
0: sing a bit of it now? Do you remember it enough to go? Uh, the chorus went like this.
1: I, you know what? I actually can't. Um, yeah. I, I remember <laughs> that it had it had. a I have a better sense of the bass line with a very affected chorus sound on it um, than I do of the melody of the song. i have got to talk about your voice because you have, you still have an amazing voice. I think it's
0: one of the most underrated British voices of all time. And, and, and going through that YouTube comments for the, the songs and that number of times people can't com- comment on your voice. And how amazing it is I've, I read some out um, Peter Cox's voice should be on display in the museum. One of the most power <laughs> of your time. Peter is in my opinion, one of the top five pop singers ever Peter Cox, the best white soul singer followed by Paul Young. I know your friends with Paul, so that's good, isn't it? You got ahead of Paul. So at what point did you realize not just that you could sing, like you had perfect pitch in that, but you had a, a great sounding voice.
1: Well, uh, first of all, all those comments are very kind. um, And I do appreciate that positivity. But I don't have that sense of my voice myself. It's a it's an unpredictable thing, which uh, which causes me <laughs> much emotional pain. I sang in the choir at school, my school Hampton grammar at the time. I think it's a private school now. My parents could never have afforded to send me to private school. But Hampton had a connection to the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court Palace. So uh, as a schoolboy, I duly went along and auditioned and got into the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court Palace. Um, and sang in the choir there for a year until my soprano voice broke. So I mentioned all that because, you know, I guess I had an ear for music even if I would rather have been playing football yeah. uh, at at 12 years old, but that was the beginning, I guess, of singing. It's it's if it's not too inappropriate to say, it's the it's the white version of a of a soul singer's church experience when they were younger. I was developing my pitch because i was always very anxious being an anxious type of person that um i wouldn't be the chorister who was holding up the choir rehearsal so Mm. i'd And I couldn't couldn't read music, even though the music sheets were handed out to the choristers every week. So I would learn by ear as fast as I could in the hope that no one was looking at me going, oh, he's holding everything up. So that was good ear training in a way uh, and stood me in good stead. And then when I got older and my voice broke, I carried on singing in the choir at school and started to develop an interest in music, primarily the reggae coming out of Jamaica in the late 60s, I suppose. And that led to Motown, uh, obviously, and all those incredible singers of that era. And then the first rock, and I mention rock because the first band in inverted commas that I was in was arguably a rock band. My rock influence was Paul Rogers in the band Free and later Bad Company. Paul Rogers is, in my opinion, the best white singer this country has produced uh, and still sounds awesome today and that was my first influence and the band that I was in named themselves after a free song and before we wrote any original material in the days when I wouldn't have known what a tribute band was I guess you could have argued that we were a free tribute band because that's all we played <laughs> songs by free and I tried my best to sound as much like Rogers as I possibly could so uh, in terms of when I when did I have any sense that i had a decent sounding voice i suppose um when uh when we started to get final interest from publishers and then recording companies because clearly if they didn't see any potential in me as a singer um we would have had no interest so i guess that was it but i'm not as you probably are gathering i'm not i don't have that kind of ego where i I think, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a great singer. All you can really do is show up and do the very best you can at every opportunity. And I think that's, that sounds sensible to me. That's what I try to do even now, as frustrating as my voice can sometimes be from my point of view. How's that?
0: That's a good answer. Okay, I'm going to go back on a couple of things based on... What- it's, okay. it's a long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's a great answer because it's it's, it's it's going to need a couple more questions. So when you say the first time you had an idea or an inkling that your voice was was good was from the record company, but you could put that down to the songs as well, couldn't you? Was there not a time before that, like when you sang socially or with friends where they were like, oh my God, your voice is amazing? Peter, like, have you thought of like doing this profession? There's no earlier time, like in your late teens, early twenties, where that was like people were pointing out to you how great your voice was.
1: No, not really. As I say, I'm, I'm even now, people ask, you know, do you sing at home? And actually, no, I don't really. Having had uh, the common experience of losing my voice while on tour, uh, up until that point, I'd always taken my voice uh, and whatever I could do somewhat for granted. I'd never done any work on vocal exercises or training my voice or, or looking after it particularly because I like a glass of wine and, and that's not good for your voice and so on and so on and so on. So these days I do try to do um, half an hour of vocal exercises every day because it's a muscle. Your vocal cords are, are muscles like any other and you need to keep them working. But uh, I say all that because I would never be singing in a social uh, occasion. More recently, when we've done promotion in Japan, in Japan the karaoke thing is is a really big deal. And On a couple of occasions, I've been out to dinner with the Japanese distributor, our record label in Japan, and they'll take you to dinner. And after dinner, the next thing that happens is karaoke. And uh, in in that environment where you are the supposed professional, when the mic gets handed to to you, I, I personally feel a terrible pressure revealing how uptight I am, I suppose. But I can't think of anything I would less want to do than karaoke. It would never would have occurred to me that your voice would be something that would be of,
0: of concern like that. and, and worry I think well. I think
1: it would be more accurate and more concise to say it doesn't always do what I want it to do. And I wish it would. And I also would love it if I didn't have so much angst about it.
0: OK, so let's get on to the album, the, the genesis of the album. So you signed uh, with the record company in 84. Is that correct? Finally, yes. Finally, yes, finally, after a few attempts. So when you made it big, you were 29, which is quite old in the pop game, isn't it? Do you think, in retrospect, that was good? You didn't become famous at 20? That might have like, screwed you up a bit?
1: Well, I think I got pretty screwed up at 29. So uh, that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't a potential uh, advantage had I been younger. Although I do think, you know, I remember some months on from our initial success seeing Bros. Um, being interviewed on the TV, um, and they were talking about the cars that they bought and this and that. And already, even at that point, I was kind of talking at the TV saying, Guys, guys, don't spend all the money. Don't yeah. spend all the money straight away because um, it's been, as I said earlier, I've been working, I am working with Gary Stevenson at the moment, and we both agree that there was a period of time there briefly where we just assumed that the success that we were having would inevitably continue. And as we all know, uh, that was not necessarily the case. You know, it's uh, these things can often have a time limit. You just kid yourself that it's going to all be roses, and then suddenly you're no longer flavour of that particular month. So even though you're more of a worrier
0: than, say, Richard was, you still had that kind of, because the hits are coming for that album you're thinking this will happen next second third fourth album
1: i did think that but i didn't answer your question which was to say that had i been younger i think i might possibly have felt that i deserved the success perhaps more than i did when i was 29 when i was perhaps thinking about overthinking things and which you can probably say based on what we've already discussed is probably true. So I think that's interesting. So you think you might have
0: found it easier if you'd have been younger?
1: Well, I think I I might not have, yeah, I might not have felt so much pressure um, to always be a so-called pop star um, because I never really felt that I was that kind of person. Certainly never felt that I looked like a pop star in any way. And then you, well, I certainly started to feel that I needed to live up to something that I imagined the audience were looking at me to be, if that makes sense. So you didn't think you looked
0: like a pop star? So my thinking was why you weren't signed with the record company. Cause you hear the damage. You think you've got these songs that are obvious pop smashes and they see a picture of you and Richard and think like, they like pop stars. You do like pop stars. You're both like really good-looking guys. It's a no-brainer, right? So that's so interesting you say that. You don't think you look like a pop star.
1: Well, let me just give you uh, another insight. Um, I don't know if this makes any sense, but uh, Robert Palmer, of whom I was and continued to be a huge fan and whose records I had bought, had said some very nice things about me uh, on TV, which was in the first place, wow. You know, Robert Palmer is is saying that i'm a good singer uh that's that that was just unbelievable to me and i met robert and on the very first occasion that i met robert he just took one look at me and made i can't remember this word specifically but he said something to the effect that "Ah, ah i see there's a psychological problem here and i think that was insightful i think you know he could see that i wasn't the kind of pop singer front man to swagger into a room and say hey everyone look at me that's never been my personality i, I thought that was insightful of him uh, uh, you know and he could see that in me the first the very first few minutes that he met me so he he said this
0: one word thing did he comment further on that saying are you finding this this level of success
1: fame and comfortable or was it just that initial no that was it that, that we um, yeah we, we didn't we spent a little bit of time with robert here and there but not a great deal and uh, you know robert had plenty going on uh, we spent um, a couple of hours with robert in a hotel room in new york listening to him on the phone speaking to his lawyer trying to extricate himself from the forthcoming tour with the power station uh. because <laughs> he had Because he had just had an enormous hit with addicted to love. And clearly wanted Well he I think he knew what he would rather be doing, let's put it that way
0: yeah yeah
1: that's fair enough
0: uh the name go west who came up with the band name and 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 why did you choose that name
1: i'm sorry to tell you there is no story you would think by now having been asked that question many many times we would have (laughs) some hilarious tale but um, i'll keep it i'll keep it short so you can edit it out of the interview we had (laughs) been trying to get a record deal for many years under the uh not very charismatic sounding name of Cox and Drummy and um labels had heard our stuff and rejected our stuff and when we got to the point at which we had the basic masters of we close our eyes and call me recorded where we had something that was you know close to the finished article and we were everyone felt positive about them John our manager uh wanted to revisit the labels but didn't want them to associate these new recordings with anything they might have heard under the name Cox and Drummy. So he said, we need to have a band name. I think one or other of Richard or myself, I can't remember which, said, well, let's have Go. And the other one said West. And that is as interesting as that story gets, I'm afraid. Whoever it was, why Go? Uh, well, we had, you know, I, I wanted to call our first album start. Richard said it sounded like a breakfast cereal, which is probably quite <laughs> accurate. Uh, I don't know. We just wanted to have something positive, I guess. Um, and it's an early example of what it's like to collaborate as a writer with somebody else where everyone has got their their chin out wanted to put an idea forward and and even the band name had to be a an equal compromise collaboration between the two of us and that has led to some of not the very best pop lyrics ever written <laughs> in my <opinion. laughs> uh compromise so uh, the fact that it's an eponymous album
0: title says so go west by go west it was that the fact that you just could not agree that on an album title or was just like no it's a, a definitive statement start of the band or name the album after us
1: Yes, I think much more likely to have been a record company decision than anything that we felt strongly about.
0: Because I like start by go west. I think that would have worked as the first as a first album.
1: Well, thanks very much. I wish you'd been around to back up my argument at the time, but, uh, I was but start was your idea but, then. Yeah, but Richard said immediately, "Sounds like a breakfast cereal." Uh, okay, I, yeah, I'm, I'm I with could, you on that I one. Could, no. I could kind of see where he was coming from, so so I didn't push that particular idea too hard. Shower. Feed the cat.
0: Breakfast. Get off start. Get up to it anytime. Okay, so, um, okay, we'll get to the album now.
2: Audio commentary. Side one. Three, two, one, play.
0: Track one, we close our eyes.
1: So we close our eyes. That is the Roland SH101 playing the bass, um, and the riff there is a very multi-track synth line by the marvelous Dave West, our keyboard genius, who never really got uh, the credit anywhere near he deserved. About the sound, he, he was the inspiration Go
0: for Go West, and it wasn't Go Dave West.
1: No, it wasn't. In fact, Dave's <laughs> name is Butcher. He changed it to West because he didn't like the name Butcher. Oh, He'll okay. hate me for telling you that. Okay. okay. <laughs> so there you're hearing some of Gary's uh, explosions. Uh, that was a reverse guitar played by Gary Stevenson. Um, Dave again there with the keyboards. Uh, and uh, this this last part of this line, the way EAEA, which crowds are often kind enough to sing along with us when we play the song live, Mm. was suggested by our friend Colin Campsey, one of many gifts he gave us, bless him. And We Close Our Eyes is the title of the song, but for a long time in the writing process, it was called I Need Your Love, as unimaginative as that title is. So if you can picture I Need Your Love instead of We Close Our Eyes, Uh, that's how it sounded for some time. I was going to say that's the sound of a distorted spring reverb, one of Gary's uh, many technological tricks. And that single note guitar line you can hear there is played by me, one of the few guitar bits and pieces I got to play on the album. And that was contrived by a very patient producer uh, working around my limitations as a guitarist. Was this always um, earmarked as the first single? no actually um, but it was the song that Richard and I felt most confident that it represented what we wanted to do as as artists, most of any more than any of the other songs on the album. It's the sound of uh, drum machine drums it it sounds very unlive now somehow, although of course at the time it was not cutting edge but fairly a fairly new development in recording. Uh, machine drums if you like it is like cutting edge in the sense it's very much of what was around in 85 yeah it is indeed of its time yeah (laughs) so here we are in the tail end of the song these are the outro choruses and i'm not singing the melody anymore because this is the point at which the producer would say okay we've heard the melody now be great which is always one of those pressure situations for a singer in the studio. It's like now you've got to come up with a dozen new ideas while everyone is waiting for you to come up with something interesting as an alternative to the original chorus melody. You often wonder what a producer's role is, and that's that's,
0: that's great producing because that does create some, a memorable last minute. Rather than just repeat the chorus to fade,
1: you create a different yeah. part of the song to end the song. You hopefully, like a, you hopefully yes, but of course, then you, all the pressure in this situation is on me. The same exact thing happened at the end of the King of Wishful Thinking, um, and of course, I'm thrilled that those ideas. Got past the quality filter and made it onto the recordings. But in the moment of everyone looking at you, going, Come on, then, come on, then, it's not necessarily a moment where I'm having the most fun. Do you understand what I mean? It's, yeah, you know, I don't it's, want to. That's, I don't work, want to be...
0: that's work and that's pressure,
1: isn't it? So track two is Don't Look Down. Well, that. Bass intro there is the magnificent Pino Palladino. I could talk about Pino in the studio for hours. Absolutely superlative bass player. And that intro does not have the keyboard melody, which was later added to a version of the song that became known as Don't Look Down, the sequel. So here you can hear a synth sound that later became referred to as the Go West sound. Um, sure, there are many other keyboard players who might <laughs> take issue with that idea. But Roland, who are the keyboard manufacturers responsible for the Juno 6 and other synthesizers that were used, actually called a preset Go West without our permission um, so we got onto them, and they gave us a lot of free stuff as a result.
0: Oh, that's, that's a great tribute, though, isn't it?
1: Um, Even preset after your band—that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. I mean, it was their it was their technology, and again, I can't take credit for the sound. It was probably Dave again, and that guitar there again <laughs> is yours truly. Again, helped by a sympathetic producer and a lot of carefully applied tissue paper on the bridge, to, so that unwanted strings didn't ring because of my limitations. But I I loved playing guitar on the record. I'm still proud of the fact that I made it on there uh, to any extent playing guitar. And that, of course, was before Alan Murphy, who you will hear in about 30 seconds, doing his magnificent thing. He would bring a level of excitement and energy to the song that wasn't there previously. So they were always such an exciting couple of hours because the, he would take the song to a new level and made us excited all over again about a song that we might have been writing, in inverted commas, for weeks or months on end. This little drum fill has caused much consternation in the live bands ever since. It's <laughs> hard to play. That's out. It's just people. It's not a straight four-four bar there, Go and ahead. this sound is Garrett is uh, Alan Murphy, just just a wicked guitar player in every sense. Wonderful man, uh, dearly loved and sadly missed. And um, Al, um, when he was presented with a section like that to play guitar over, um, would always play his most exciting performance. Either take one or take two he was always the best when he didn't know what was coming in the track um which is quite still quite remarkable to my mind um and a level of musicianship that i i will never uh, uh i will never reach okay so for things like guitar solos or saxophone solos do you often have a melody you
0: want played or is like just do your thing and we'll just choose the best take
1: yeah, that much more because I mean all this stuff on the end of the track here is just it's almost like I want to stop singing so I can listen because he's just such a fantastic guitar player. And uh yeah, I would never. I mean, yes, we did on occasion comp the best bits as you suggested, but usually he's just it, it, honestly I would those guitar sessions where Al would come to play the solos was some of the most exciting because here we had a thing that Richard and I had written and uh, many people had already contributed, contributed to it. Pino on bass, Dave with all his keyboard magic and so on. And Gary was the bangs and crashes, which is what led to the name of that album, bangs and crashes. So this is call me. Um, this came about in a slightly different way, perhaps, than some of the songs that Richard and I have written together. We'd been trying to get a record deal for literally years. I think we were probably in their third year of our publishing deal. Um, so thank you to ATV for sticking with us, even though we couldn't get signed. And we, Richard and I just agreed that we would try to write the most commercial thing that we felt comfortable with because the answer we were constantly getting from labels is we don't hear a single. We don't hear a single. So Richard um, wrote the music, if you like, of that chorus, which is also the intro of the song. And I came up with the melody, the words and the title um, for the song. And then we got together and, added these verses and uh, and other sections but it was the chorus this part of the song that we that we first had and K- richard had those keyboard parts and i uh wrote the words and the title um so a little bit different and um these bvs oh man i wish i could make that sound now the bvs that you can hear there they the, the parts go up into the stratosphere Um, a falsetto sound. I still have a falsetto, but I can't squeak tunefully like I am in those BV sections there. And a lot of that, uh, those BVs were recorded in the guest bedroom of Gary Stevenson's parents flat in Stanwell, which again gives you an idea of how long these songs were in the process of recording. Yeah. That, uh, clean guitar sound you can hear there is gary stevenson uh we're we were all channeling the sound of another band called the fix i don't know if you might be familiar with um one thing leads to another which was their american jamie westorum we love that guitar sound and we kind of stole it really um so this section of the song here um is largely provoked, if you like, by Gary and Dave because um, it's quite a brave thing to do to change the... The tempo the the rhythmic accent of a hit of a what is supposed to be a single in the middle section of the song, it always makes me laugh when I see audiences trying to dance to that
0: <laughs> on live. <laughs> uh, so in terms of writing lyrics
1: how 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 what
0: percentage of the lyrics were based on real events, and how much of them were just writing a pop lyric
1: yeah, not really well that 's the thing about writing collaborating as lyricists. We've had some success, thankfully. So obviously, I cannot look back and say it would have been better if if it were done differently. But when you're banging heads, which is how I would describe my writing process with Richard, you might have a lyrical idea that you feel really strongly about, that your collaborator says, no, I'm not feeling that. So in the perfect world it brings out the best of the two collaborators. But I do think it means that songs are very seldom ever really written from personal experience because two people are contributing to the lyric. Yeah, so it wasn't a case of, oh, this song, you write the lyric,
0: this song, I write the lyric. In this case, you you were both writing the music and lyrics to all the songs together.
1: Absolutely. We are. Um, I, I know that Richard wouldn't have a problem with, with my saying that each of us is fairly controlling and has an idea of what's best, uh, and the other person doesn't necessarily always agree. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I can remember suggesting, look, why don't you give me a track and I'll write the, the lyrics and the melody, and Richard's reaction to that would be, well that's what the song's going to be about and i want to have a part in that so yeah it, it's it, <coughs> always writing all the parts all the chord changes and all of the lyrics and melody together for better or worse
0: track 4 is eye to eye
1: we called that synthesizer the one note samba on the uh, on the track list um i've always really felt good about using the Roland synthesizers as a sort of pseudo horn section. Um, I think we probably could have had live horns, but we really liked the sound of the synths uh, playing the part of the horn section. Here I'm singing in a head voice. I think that's the technical term. I can't sing this song in this key anymore. Can't make that sound. We still play it live, but we've changed the key so I can... Manage it in uh, in a in a sound that I can still make.
0: <laughs> this is a great, great vocal. The ballads really bring out like the power of your because you've got a soft voice, but also like a bit of grit as well. So it's like it comes out really well in the ballads.
1: Thank you. As I say, I, I, I don't have this part of my range. I can probably sing the notes, but I don't have that part of my range as under control anymore to be able to sing. It's, it's, it almost sounds to me... I often have this experience listening to vocals that I did 38 years ago. That It sounds like a different person. Um, yeah. So this backing vocal here is Richard and myself singing along with Kate Humble, um, who was a, arguably a founder member of the band, but um, by the time... Uh, we were out live for the first time, Um, Kate was no longer involved, but uh, she's singing great there. In fact, I should have mentioned that it's Kate's voice who sings Worlds Apart on the previous track, Call Me. That's Kate uh, uh, singing on her own in that song.
0: Okay. So do you remember anything about the writing of this song?
1: Um, we wrote this, as I remember, in my bedroom in my mum's flat in Twickenham with um, on the Juno 6 Roland Synthesizer, which we had bought with some money that my friend John Gosling lent me. We There's a little note in the sleeve notes um, to the effect, um, thanks to John for not telling his wife. I think at the time, the money that he lent us – um, I think his wife might have had other ideas where that money could have been spent. <laughs> so he didn't tell us, he didn't tell her that he'd given her us that money. Lovely sax solo here. It was, it fits perfectly in this song. Later the sax became less popular with our A&R department, who would say uh, that saxophone automatically, resigned you to the adult contemporary radio stations in oh, America. No, automatically, it's by um, having a sax. Yeah, yeah it almost. Uh, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, Mel Collins, who did a fantastic job there. And again, uh, when you have soloists Al Mel coming along to add uh, on tracks, you know, if you imagine that we'd had that song for a long time and that fade and those BVs were all going, and um, to add such a glorious solo performance over the top again it just takes the song to a a new level uh, um to a place where you hadn't been able to envisage it before those two hours and that person came along and added that and you just go yeah it's really exciting for us as well yeah track five is haunted here you can hear dave west and various synth sounds having some fun that's me playing guitar And that's Richard playing bass. This was quite a tortured animal. um, Arguably one of the more contentious songs on the album. Um, Still kind of feel like we were heavily affected, let's say, by 80s, other 80s artists of the time. I'm not even really singing in a natural way, trying to incorporate vocal elements that other singers were doing and again you can hear katie um very featured in those bvs there any vocalists in particular you were influenced by well i'm just thinking of you know there was a certain way of singing um i would say Philoki, for example mm-hmm. maybe glenn gregory from heaven 17 they had a a certain way of singing that didn't that wasn't my natural voice. Uh, It's difficult to explain, but we were listening obviously to what other artists were doing. I mean, I think the first two lines of we close our eyes, I hear those now and I think, what the hell was I thinking singing like that? Just, I I definitely would sing those songs. I still, I do sing those songs differently. um, uh, When we play those songs live. And here's another wicked example of Al just, I think this is a one-take guitar solo. Just oh, just even (laughs) now, just oh, blinding guitar. So exciting to be in the studio when this was going down. So, you record all the
0: guitar solos in one go then? Yeah, not
1: all of them, but but largely, he was. As I said earlier, his his first or second take was often just so exciting and so perfect that you just didn't want to mess with it we did sometimes comp him here and there but generally speaking I mean, there's a song on the next album dancing on the couch called little caesar and he didn't even know the chord progression and we just press play and what you hear is just al's one take performance through that song i couldn't even believe it at the time i just difficult to describe very exciting I want to big myself up and say I played the bass in the uh, in the verse of Haunted. So it's me on bass in the verses and Richard here. Richard had a, a an octaves disco bass line originally in the song, which I was never very keen on and lent on the other guys in the studio for support to voted out of the final recording, much to Richard's great annoyance and frustration. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, you know, you, uh, you don't always get your own way, really.
2: And that's one. Hey,
0: I'm Will. And I'm Kat. If you love 1980s pop culture, you'll love 1980s now. Each week we discuss our favorite 1980s media. Like movies, TV shows, music. Yeah, we chat with our favorite 1980s celebrities. Like affirmations with Dee Wallace. And other times uh, Alex Winter tells us what Bill and Ted's phone booth smells like. But it's always fun. You don't have to miss the 1980s. You can have your 1980s now.
1: Going again back to what we discussed about the writing process of We Close Our Eyes and the fact that our version for a long time was a mid-tempo thing, one of the things that Gary applied to almost all of the songs on the album was to raise the tempo to the point at which then the song didn't work anymore because the the vocal, the melody was too quick or I couldn't get the words out and then bring the tempo back down just to the point where maximum energy was happening. And that's really stood us in good stead for example, in the more recent years when we've been doing a lot of retrospective festivals along with some contemporaries of ours at those times. And if you are an artist who had one hit and it was a ballad, (laughs) <laughs> it's very difficult to bring. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, very, yeah. If, you get, yeah. If, you've got, if you've got 20 minutes in front of 20,000 people, it's great that we have songs where we can come on stage and just have energy uh, rather than be restricted, for example, to just that one ballad where, obviously, you hope the crowd will sing along, but it's just good to have high-tempo tunes. Nice. two.
2: Three, two, one, play.
1: I love that um drum fill at the beginning that's graham broad playing on the rims of his toms so that was a live uh performance obviously although as you can hear the dustbin snare is more part of a of a triggered drum performance but there are live drum elements here god that snare sound is awful isn't it <laughs> um Uh, This, this again, was a song that was a very much more mid-tempo thing before Dave and Gary got involved. And the bass line you can hear, I think that's a wave synthesizer, but that was Dave's extrapolation of our much more simple uh, bass line that we had on the original tempo of the song. Again, this is me playing those clean guitars. Um, um, This vocal... um, I was telling Gary about this just recently and he couldn't remember it, but uh, I had sung the song and we'd comped it together at Rooster and I was never happy with the vocal performance. Eventually, we came to mix and we moved to another studio called Psalm West and I begged Gary to let me have one last go at the vocal uh, on a mixing day and he was very reluctant to let me do it and in the end, he agreed on the basis that I could have one go. And so this vocal that you hear is, um, I'm, I don't know if it's actually all a one-take vocal, but it's pretty much a one-take vocal because Gary wouldn't give me any more time to revisit the vocal again. That's interesting. And it's, of my favorite to, vo- it's
0: my favourite vocal on the album. It's a great vocal, especially
1: on the verses. Oh, thank you. You obviously, you like uh, you like a bit of rock. We always yeah. call this my, i whenever I've got to, uh, uh, resort to the grittier side of my voice which i feel maybe less so now but gary was never that keen on he because gary was coming from a different non sort of a soul background and he always would refer it to refer, refer to that as my joe cocker voice another blinding solo from l there that i just talked all over yeah i think um it i was obviously under pressure to get this vocal more to my own satisfaction and that's why it's a bit more gritty because i'm, I'm sort of up against the clock if you like is there's a real edge to
0: this vocal it's kind of a real kind of um yeah, yeah. To it.
1: well yeah absolutely um um, as I say, I was trying to get a better take than anything that we'd been listening to for weeks on end because I'd never really got it to my satisfaction. So there's certainly some endeavour in there, let's <laughs> say. <laughs> Amazing to me, this wasn't a single. It's a hit to me. Was there ever any thought oh, well, in retrospect
0: you. you should have like maybe kept this aside for the next album Has it like the first single of the next album?
1: No, because we were short enough of material as it was and originally there were going to be 10 songs on the album, the 10th of which was called Dream World. It has... More recently, seen the light of day, but at the time we didn't feel we had, it was in a state that was good enough to incorporate, which is why the album only has nine tracks on it. Later, when there was some success with this album, we were given the rope, if you like, by the record label to go back into Psalm and do our own 12-inch mixes. And... I think all of us would agree that that, those sessions, doing 12 inches of our own songs, because at that time, the 12-inch single was quite a popular thing, not something that we'd ever contemplated as a band or Gary as a producer. And when we listened to other people's 12 inches, they largely seemed to us, and this might be unfair, they largely seemed to be the first minute and a half of whatever the single was, then 64 bars of drums, (laughs) <laughs> and then played. And we always thought that was very unimaginative. And because now we had arguably a hit album on our hands, uh, the label gave us a budget and we went into Psalm with a view to doing extended mixes of our own material in a more inventive way. Uh, track seven, Goodbye Girl. Not sure what we were thinking with this drum intro, but... So that synthesizer is me playing, if you can believe it. Um, uh, had this melody even on the demo. Um, lots of people have said that it reminds them of bad porn soundtrack, <laughs> which, is, which is not what we had in mind. Uh, and again, um, this oh, you've is you ruined uh, the song for me
0: forever. Now, <laughs>
2: I
1: wish I, I wish you hadn't told me that. Oh no! I should, I'm have images I in my head when listening to his song. This. There you are, you see. So that was me again, playing the clean guitars. Um, And this bass sound is coming from a Roland synthesizer, but later you'll hear Pino playing some glorious fretless bass overdubs. It was always great playing with Pino, working with Pino, I should say, because even though he had some reputation as the, I mean, because he's a fantastic bass player, but he was, in his own words, kind of ubiquitous at the time. He played on a lot of stuff around this time. And despite that, his ears were always open. He'd be looking to me, to Richard, to say, what would you like me to play here? What are you hearing? And certainly on the baseline of Call Me, I sang him a lot of that line, which he then played and, of course, made infinitely better. But he wasn't a guy that would come in and go, this is what I'm going to do. He would listen to you for to help you realize your vision for the song i mentioned on uh on the sleeve notes for the recent box set around this album that um i remember the first time i tried to sing this song we made the mistake i made the mistake of of allowing a small invited audience to squash into that control room i was talking about um earlier and uh i was not getting the vocal the way that i wanted it to be um my voice was not cooperating and i threw a massive tantrum much to <laughs> the embarrassment of everyone's sitting in the control room and i think we we scrapped that vocal session and we released it later when we had a more sensible working environment
0: so it goes back to the stress you're talking about of singing vocals and
1: just you know i i, I felt the pressure that those people in the control room would not unreasonably expect me to go on the mic and sing the song down once. And that would be it glorious done. But that wasn't the way we worked. You know, we would always be dropping in to fix this or that, or make that performance of that line just a bit better. And of course, in those days you would be dropping in on a tape machine. Whereas again, today's technology, it's, it's so simple, so much more straightforward to do that same thing. In a much simpler and quicker way.
0: We just missed the middle eight. That's one thing I wanted to point out is how good you and Richard are doing middle eights, which is kind of a dying art now. A lot of songs just don't bother having them, which is normally a thing that comes after the second chorus. That's true. Course. And
1: that's absolutely really good.
0: That was a really good one on this track.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I think I might have had something to do with the chord progression there, but Richard is. Richard is is an instinctive musician, I would say. And he'll sit uh, these chords for this chorus, for example. These are Richard's contribution. And he'll just fool around for ages, not necessarily knowing what the chords are that he's playing on the keyboard, but at the same time, using these close clusters of notes in a chord until he gets something that sounds good to him. And uh, I think that it's fair to say that the chorus of We Close Our Eyes is another example. When we work with a new musician, you might be depping on our band in a live scenario. They're always uh, really surprised to learn what the actual chords to We Close Our Eyes are because they're far from predictable and they're not necessarily immediately obvious when you hear the song. It's a a great little chord progression, as is this one on this song. Um, And Richard would... Um, f- show me the chords and I might wrestle them into some kind of more coherent shape arrangement wise maybe but certainly the voicings of the chords are often um, Richard's uh, contribution and again I'm not sure why we're trying to depress the listener into into sleep with this end of this phrase <laughs> <laughs> this, this is definitely one of the artier moments on the album
0: Track eight is Innocence, yep. which may well be the most underrated track to me because it doesn't get talked about, really. Like, and this, this could Thank have been you. a single.
1: Uh, yep, yeah, here's Innocence. This is um, a little sequence of line by Dave, bit of reverse fretless bass again from Pino. So this, despite the fact that the um, the drums are triggered, the guitar and the bass were played live together in that tiny control room. Alan's playing the chords and Pino is playing the bass. Again, these guys, musicians of that level, I think they often preferred to play live together. Um, I wish I had a photograph of Al and Pino standing because Pino's six foot five and the the control room is very small and they had to stand very close together, but uh, they made it work somehow. I want to say uh, this is a, one of our better attempts at a verse lyric, but I never really felt that we had a chorus to this song. I still don't think it's the strongest chorus we had. So thank you for being so positive about it as a song. Just,
0: to be honest, everything on this album sounds like a single, apart from maybe the last track. You could have released any yeah. four tracks as singles, those first eight tracks.
1: Um, thank you. That's very kind.
0: So when you um, listen to a song, you look at the lyric, can you w- remember, how specific can you be about it? and so, said, oh, I remember that I wrote this line, Richard wrote that line, or is it just, it's a mishmash because it's, you did it all together?
1: That's a really good question, because oddly, when I look back at the lyrics to the songs, I I know which ones resonate with me, and and I also know the ones on which I'm less keen. <laughs> so I, I I interpret that as some sense of, I think I wrote this and I think Richard wrote that. It's not to say that I hope that Richard likes some of the lyrics I wrote. And of course, I like lyrics that Richard wrote. But there's there's something about the ones that you feel more connected to somehow. So, yes, I, in, in a subtle way, I think I can tell um, which which lines I feel more strongly about. We're into
0: another middle eight now. I love this middle eight and the way it goes back into the last verse. I think this is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's a great way of getting into the last verse, it kind of creates a new momentum
1: and pushes you back into the song. Yeah, well, thank you again. You know, so it's many good, people right? contributing. Yeah, my voice is sounding very much younger than it does now. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you're singing the
0: verse melody slightly different here. Is that another thing that, like Gary said? Okay, let's, for the third verse, let's do something different with the, with the song here.
1: Exactly right. It, it yeah. wasn't necessarily always coming from Gary. You know, I, I would think, okay, we, we need to make this next verse more interesting. I mean, for better or worse, Gary certainly then did have a mindset of, okay, we've had this many bars and nothing has happened. We need something new to happen here. And that was what led to a number of the so-called special effects on various of the songs on the album. We need a, we need a moment of interest here. You know,
0: were you involved in that. What was chosen as a single? Did you get involved in those discussions?
1: We were in, in the sense that, um, I'm just, I think Al's going to come blazing in here somewhere, isn't he? I remember this, no, he's not there. That's interesting because um, this the tale of this song in our live shows at the time, Al and I would be doing a a call and response thing. Wow, there's no lead guitar in the outro. I can't believe that. It shows how long it is since I've listened to this record. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Perhaps I'm thinking of the 12-inch. Yeah, I was going to say it's on the 12-inch. Al inch. Into, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And the final track is Missing Persons.
1: Yeah, that's the sound of something that we recorded at um, the Music Works studio. We spent a whole day, there was another example, recording bits and pieces of pipe and things being dropped on the ground for special effects to be added. I think that's Mel Collins again on saxophone. Pino immediately. Um this sequencer that you can hear is a wave, PPG wave synthesizer, which is playing that sequence, completely contrived by Dave West. And this awesome bass line is uh, completely the, the fabrication of Pino. Our original bass line was way more simple. And I've mentioned much earlier in our chat about my own influences and to some extent Richard's being the rock band Free. And I realised much more belatedly how much of Free Pino has bought into this baseline. line. Um, it's almost like a like a super futuristic version of Free. This bass line is just absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And again, an example of what other players were bringing to the party that brought our ideas to life in a way that made Richard and me so excited about our own our own songs that had been previously much more simple.
0: What was the inspiration for this song? Because it's very different to the rest of the album.
1: Um, well, I think I think this might have been an, an idea, a lyrical idea of Richard's, and I think he might have been to some. Richard is a huge Todd Rundgren fan. These BVs, by the way, is another um, thing that was suggested by that band, The Fix. They had a a song called Less Cities, More Moving People. And I think it had a BV effect somewhat similar to that. Um, so I was saying that Richard is a huge Todd Rundgren fan. And Todd Rundgren, obviously a superlative writer, um, has a song called Parallel Lines. Um, Whose lyrical idea is not a million miles from what we're going for here with the lyric? Here, do you remember writing me again song? playing those me again playing those clean guitars? Yes, because the clean guitars, these very simple chords, were the first thing that we had for the song before we had the melody or the rhythm. So this. Wonderful piano solo was recorded on an evening when I wasn't in the studio. And uh, I came back into the studio the next day and this section of the song, which hadn't existed (laughs) before that evening, had been added. And I I couldn't believe that my mates had allowed this to happen without (laughs) me being there to have something to say about it. I was absolutely (laughs) furious and really unhappy about it for much too long because by the time i came to my senses about how good it was um yeah I, I obviously now i see i see the light but at the time i couldn't believe it i was i wanted them to to remove it from the track because <laughs> you weren't there because i wasn't there and you the person who well. played that piano solo was the tape op in the studio who was obviously an accomplished player and all they were doing was getting a sound on the piano and he was playing and richard i think said that sounds good um just and so without telling the tape op that they were co- recording him they just got him to play through a few times and there it was uh, so it was a one of those happy accidents that i know richard is passionate about and feels very strongly about happy accidents are you know some of the best parts of what happened in the recording process
0: so that wasn't even a take that was just him messing about thinking he was just he was just it wasn't Yeah messing do-
1: about in a very messing about in a very musical way because it is great what he's playing. something that neither Richard nor I would ever have come up with in a million years. So, you know, kudos, you know, it's it's great. So the remastered version of
0: this song is half a minute longer than the original. Is it just always like a six-minute track that was just edited down for the album?
1: That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to hear the – I'd have to hear the – the remastered version to see what was different about it's it.
0: It's just the ending seems to go on a bit longer when there's no, after the vote forever.
1: Probably. <laughs> no. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, the reason while we were indulged to do something that was more art than commerce, that's why the track is track nine on the CD. Uh, the opposite of what you were talking about earlier about front loading the CD was yes. the more obvious commercial songs.
0: Yeah, so you've got them by now, so you can take a bit of a risk with a song.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know the other the other thing about it is when technology moved from vinyl to CDs. Um, of course, you put the strong songs at the front end because you never know when the person's going to press stop or pause and not hear the rest of the album. Whereas, of course, with vinyl, it was a, it was always a different ball game, and you would, I think that um, just to, perhaps to to, to back up what you yourself said about SOS and thank you for the kind words. The reason why SOS was track one side two was because in the days of vinyl, you know, you, if you were going to turn the album over and play track one, then again, that needed to be a strong song that would that would have an impact, which is why they chose SOS for that, I guess. That's in
2: the end of Go West by Go West. Record it.
0: So I haven't listened to it like that because I think it's a fantastic album. Because I, I checked it out the first time in years, maybe like two years ago. And i was surprised how much I loved it. And um, thank you. What, what your opinion of it is now? I have to listened to it again.
1: Well, I think you know. Obviously, I'm proud of of the songs. I've already gone into some of the compromises that were made, which I don't think necessarily led to the best lyrics that have ever been written. But on the other hand, um, and there are some terrible drum sounds on there. I know Gary would, would say exactly the same thing. It's of its time, but you know, again, the combination of people in the room was just a, a fantastic four months of pretty much every day, everything just going fantastically. Well, people, all pitching in ideas, um, everyone having an open mind, and then having the the benefit of Mel Collins on sax, Graham Board on drums, uh, Alan playing guitar, Pino playing bass, Katie singing. You know, just a fantastic uh, energy and 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 a good blending of people together everyone involved in it made the songs better than than richard and my own original versions of those songs if that makes sense
0: okay the cover so was that a photo shoot designed as an album cover photo shoot or was it just a photo shoot and you thought that's the that's the picture for the cover
1: no that was very definitely the photo shoot that was designed to be the album cover what is the name of the photographer brian brian griffin Brian Griffin, thank you. Now, Brian was a a very successful kind of, I hope he wouldn't be offended if I said kind of a mad scientist, very art driven photographer. And uh, Richard always, I think it's fair to say that Richard always had much more of a visual sense than I. I still defer to him over what's a good picture and what not, I don't mean a good picture of me. I mean, what is a good overall image that has a that draws the, the, the viewer in? He's got a really good eye, Richard. He's a good photographer. I don't have any claim to that skill. Perhaps it's also partly because he's always sure about what he thinks, whereas I'm much less sure. But he was very keen on the idea of using Brian for the photo shoot. I think he might have been a bit less keen on it when the reality of the photo shoot meant that we would have polystyrene balls fired at us from a wind machine <laughs> for about six six hours which has led to richard's red eyes in that photo which he he absolutely hated it absolutely hated that whole photographic process because that's what it was you know we had a bit of makeup applied we put our own jackets on and then we stood in front of a wind machine and people fired polystyrene balls at us for about six hours what was the concept behind it then what was the idea from his point of view I'm not even sure, you know, I, I definitely wasn't. I, I was just going and doing what I was told largely most <laughs> of the time in 1984. Uh, okay, you're doing this photo shoot, you're doing that photo shoot. So uh, obviously I knew that Brian had a reputation. Richard was really enthusiastic about Brian's involvement. So I just said, okay, fine, uh, let's go and do it. If there was a concept, it might have been in Brian's mind. It, it, I wasn't aware of it.
0: Okay, so can I make a complaint now? Because I've said lots of nice Please, things to you, so I, I can make absolutely. a complaint. Right. So I got this album when I was a kid in 85, took it home and really disappointed when I took out the inner sleeve because there wasn't one. It was just a paper sleeve. Yeah. Now, why was there no inner sleeve of the lyrics? Why was there, like, And were you party to this discussion of, of what would be inside the album?
1: Again, it's an excellent question. And partly because I know that there, there has been an inner sleeve. Have you ever seen an inner sleeve?
0: You mean in the original yeah, that, release? So it was it was Debate Smith that, that stiffed me then?
1: It might have been, but I know... Well, I, I seriously, can't when say it first came out, was there an inner sleeve? I don't know, but there has been an inner sleeve. I'm not sure whether it was when it first came out or if there was a repressing yeah, and, that, uh, and then the inner maybe. sleeve was removed, but there oh. definitely has been an inner sleeve to that album. And... To answer your, the other part of your question, no, of course I wouldn't have been a party to that decision. I mean, I might have been asked, would you like to have an inner sleeve? And Richard and my ethos, our whole aspiration even today is let's make everything as good as Mm -hmm. we possibly can. So, of course, we would have said, yes, absolutely. But I can also tell you, now that I'm far more aware of the bitter realities of these things, is that an inner sleeve costs money. And while that would definitely not have been our decision, someone along the line might have said, okay, if we're going to repress the album this time, we'll just do it with a, with a straightforward plain in the sleeve. So I'm sorry you got stiff, but it wasn't my fault.
0: Oh, I I, I love the album. but I felt cheated by not having the lyrics to, to sit on my bed and, and follow the lyrics. It's just an integral part of listening to albums, especially in the eighties.
1: I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I absolutely totally agree and and I'll be applying the same same parameters, the same idea to my forthcoming solo album. Speaking for myself and especially given my solo album it features nine songs that i've written on my own without a collaborator and the angst <laughs> that i've gone through with these lyrics well while i'm not pretending for a moment that they are poetry i'm fine tweaking fine tuning tweaking the lyrics right up until the day that i do the vocal always trying to make it better so absolutely i want people to see the lyrics definitely i totally agree with you i think it's a it's a real loss that that things have developed in the way that they have, but yeah, hey, that's an old guy talking.
0: <laughs> anyway, I made the same complaints to Lana Curry about Into the Gaps. So it's not just you, so it's fine.
2: Etymology, <laughs> quick fire round.
0: Yeah, I think you might have already answered this because everyone talks about you and Richard but like two of the nicest guys in pop music, right? So, one of my questions is going to be, what's the biggest diva moment you've had? And it might be the one you've already mentioned, but was there a bigger one?
1: there have been many diva moments many diva <laughs> moments and certainly occasions when I've said things that I'm not proud of that I, I can still remember but yeah I mean the, everyone to refer to the album everyone stormed out of the studio in inverted commas at, at one point or another including the producer I had to walk around the corner and talk him down after he hadn't got his way over something and Richard was really vehement about the baseline to Haunted and, and didn't want it to be Removed from the track and felt really annoyed about it. So, yeah, we all have had our moments. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, it does. Perfect. Where do you keep your Brit Award that you won for best newcomer?
1: The Radio 1 Newcomers of
0: 1985. Go West! Come on, there's a lot of people to thank and we're going to forget them all. So, there's a few here. we don't thank and they're going to give us a good kick in. There's Al Murphy up there, all our band, Gary Stevenson. John Glover. Oh, I don't know. He's, touched, he's touched. We'd also We've like been to say thanks those. very much
1: to our publishers and to Christmas Records. who have been a great support. Thanks very much. Uh, the Brit Award that I have is on the, I think it's on the windowsill in the bedroom of the house. I must say that while it's brilliant to have won a Brit, the actual award that you get in this day and age is a much more fancy thing than the things that Richard and I received. <laughs> ours kind of look like it's something that someone made in the, in the garden shed with a, with a welder and a couple of old bits of tin. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not the most prepossessing thing, even if it is a Brit. Yeah, at
0: least you can say you won one. You know, it doesn't look great. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you could do any track from the album as a duet... Which song would you choose, and who would
1: the singer be? Wow, That's, that this we could be here all day. Um, what lends itself to being a duet? Um, I'm not sure that any of the lyrics necessarily lend themselves. So let's say "Eye to Eye" because it's a. I can sort of imagine a female voice. Who would I sing "Eye to Eye" with? I think I find in these situations because I could agonize about this for days but um i'm i know um beverly knight vaguely she's an incredible singer and i find in these situations often the first name that comes to mind is not necessarily the worst idea so i'm gonna say beverly knight how's that that sounds great
0: gotta make that happen that could be you could do that as like a a, a b-side or something to promote your new single yeah that's a great (laughs) idea okay what's the one thing you would change about the album
1: Again, referring back to the fact that there were so many people involved and everyone was pitching in ideas, there are songs on the album about which I don't feel as positive as others. But I don't really think it would be fair to say that I'd change anything about it because it's not just my thing. It's, you know, there's a a team of people all, you know, pitching in ideas and have all had an impact in various ways. And again, I, I feel particularly uh, that I would like to give credit to Dave West for the synthesizer sounds because you know, he, he's such a big part of the sound of the record even though the ideas and the songs and the chord progressions and the lyrics you know, were all Richard's and mine, but Dave you know, the riff of We Close Our Eyes <laughs> All those sound effects in Haunted the baseline of SOS. There's so much of Dave on the record. So I just want to give him a shout out, really, because I just never felt that I feel that I have never given Dave nearly enough credit and the credit that he deserves. Excellent. Okay. And we end on the same four questions each time. So what is your biggest professional
0: disappointment of the 80s? (laughs)
1: now if i were richard i'd have a really funny answer to that but i'm not richard so (laughs) my professional disappointment um while we weren't in the best place while we were writing the songs for dancing on the couch we in hindsight we should have recorded some covers some or anything that would have made us ready with that second album sooner than we were Because the lesson that we should have learned, even now, which still, still really haven't learned, is that you know, you it's better to have a decent album at the right time than the best album you could possibly ever create a year and a half too late. That's what we did. Yeah, and uh, people forget. Really quickly, and if we didn't have strong enough songs for dancing on the couch, had we thought about it, and I, well, it wasn't in my mind at all either at the time, but had we realized that, had we been f- uh, aware of it in advance, if that could even be possible, I would have said, Right, let's just choose three really strong songs written by other people that we could cover and make decent representations of so that we have an album ready to go nine months after the first one but we didn't do that
0: okay and what is your best professional moment of the 80s
1: well winning the brit was pretty cool i mean i never really imagined that that richard or i would would necessarily win any awards and so um that was really cool and of course. uh, you asked me earlier about my voice, and when did I have a sense that uh, that it was decent? I mean, there is no there's no validation in terms of the songwriting and the songs and everything else that we had done, like people putting their hands in their pockets and buying the record, and then voting for us as the best newcomers of 1985. So, yeah, I'd say that was up there.
2: The eternal jukebox.
0: Excellent. Okay, and we have the thing called the Eternal Jukebox, where all music is wiped forever. But you get to keep three tracks. So, which three tracks would you keep from Go West, the album?
1: Oh, um, well, I, if they if if I could only have three tracks, it wouldn't be by Go West. But still, um, well, we close our eyes, don't look down. Goodbye, girl.
0: So excellent choices. And finally, your three words to describe what the album is or means to you.
1: Wow, <laughs> uh, three words, right? No, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer that question, Mark. I'm not good at that kind of thing. In a sentence, <laughs> in a sentence, what does the album mean
0: to you? In a sentence, then I give you a few more words. Oh, to play. Uh,
1: no! I see. I can give you three. I can okay. give you three words. After all, living the dream.
2: That is the end of the interview.
1: Thanks
0: to Peter for that interview. A fascinating hearing about the process of making the LP and writing the songs, and also the insecurities and doubts. The, as I said, an in interview from the outside in. He was a guy that had it all. He was good looking, a brilliant voice, wrote great songs, but there was still those doubts all the way through the 80s and beyond. Which I thought I find really, really interesting. It was a great chat. Uh, he's got a new album coming out this year. You can check him out on Instagram as official Peter Cox on Twitter at Peter John Cox, And also thanks to the Eternal Martin Page for having to put a good word in. You can check out his podcast, Radio Isles Nest. And he has lots of demos of unreleased songs, including some songs he wrote with Peter. Other demos are sung by Peter. Some great stuff there. And he's got his websites, martinbeige.com and www.rondavisforever.com. All right, so the album, there's a great five disc box set that's worth checking out. Some really good bonus stuff. Basically, the Bangs and Crashes LP is incorporated into the bonus discs. It's also got a DVD with it, which I think every box set should have. That's what disappointed me about the Seas um, of Love one. It didn't have the DVD. You know, we got the uh, promos and the live tracks and the top of the pots performances. So that's that's a good box set. My only issue with the original RP is that it's only 37 minutes long, the original version. You know, I have this thing, the perfect length for an album is between 40 and 45 minutes. So allow me to introduce to you an alternate version of the Go West album, which I'm calling Start, in tribute to Peter's original title. And I've taken that missing persons because I think it just stands out from the rest of the album. I mean, this album could have had seven singles. You could have done a thriller with this and just released pretty much everything on it as a single. But anyway, try it. So we start with the We Close Our Eyes 12-inch overhang mix. as this lovely long intro. There's so a couple of 12-inch mixes on this. this is Julian Mendelsohn, if you're listening. Hi, Julian. You'll love that. So then you think of the uh, album version as the single edit, effectively. Then you go into the Don't Look Down, the sequel, single mix, you mentioned in the interview. It's got more balance to it. Then you put the ballad in next, Eye to Eye, then Call Me and in Haunted, and side one. Side 2, SOS, The Perpendicular Mix, a bit longer. Oh, it does fade out rather than having a great ending. One Way Street, which they ended up using on the Rocky IV soundtrack. That's a lovely ballad. Innocence, The Desperation 7-Inch Edit from the box set. And you end on Goodbye Girl, because goodbye song. Goodbye Girl, 41 minutes. To me, that's, that's a really good, longer version of the album. So check that out. Uh, if you like the episode and and you'd like to contribute towards the podcast um, you can make paypal contributions at atizography at gmail.com thank you for those that have Uh, and to end with um, Peter has made plenty of music since the Go West album with Go West and as a solo artist good tracks on um, the follow up dancing on the couch as Little Caesar Uh, The King is Dead with contribution from Kate Bush that was due to the Alan Murphy connection That's What Love Can Do from the follow-up, Indian Summer. Another right with Martin Page alongside Faithful and King of Wishful Thinking. Only Love from Future Now, which has some lovely harmonica work from Richard. And as a solo artist, there's Tender Heart from his first solo LP, which is called Peter Cox. Go West by Go West, Peter Cox by Peter Cox. And a really nice cover of Fall Out with Feet the Crow, and from Desert Blooms. But I'm going to finish... That's one of the great things about doing this. You Sometimes just just chance upon these songs you fall in love with. And he did a standalone single in 2015. Uh, with vocals and piano by Rosabella Gregory also wrote the song. And this is a beautiful song with a, with a great vocal from Peter. And this one sounds like it's classic, like it's always existed, one of those songs. And this could be the new direction. And Peter, if you ever hear this, you should get back in contact with Rosabella, right? Write some songs, do a couple of covers. And Burt Backrack died recently, and there is the album he made with um, Elvis Costello. Painted From Memory, which I think is my favourite album in the last 25 years. And there's some great ballads on there. I think Peter would sound great singing, like Toledo or maybe the title track. You should definitely do that, Peter. But anyway, this is wonderful, this song. Uh, It's called Better Love Next Time. So until time next, love
2: better. Nah. Thank you for the times we had For the good and the bad Thought I'd grow old with you Tie the knot See it through Still so much to learn The point of no return Comes too soon I don't want to search for years Breaking hearts, shedding tears Knowing that I'll never find the you I loved and left behind and though we crossed a line, we're out of time. This time, nothing ventured, nothing gained in pursuit of pleasure. We found pain—something only hindsight can explain. Better love Next time And what I dread the most When you leave Your ghost Will follow me from room to shout Haunting me every hour Until I'm on the way
1: mate, I, I, it looks as if we dropped out there, probably a boredom filter on my length of answer <laughs> <laughs> alright
0: there I forgot to mention there's some extra bits that I meant to include uh, so I'm sticking right at the very end uh, this didn't fit within the format of the audio commentary but I thought they were interesting so the first part is where Peter talks about 12-inch mixes and there's the second part where he talks about choosing singles, so
1: enjoy because now we had arguably a hit album on our hands, uh, the label gave us a budget and we went into Psalm with a view to doing extended mixes of our own material in a more inventive way. So we could then call Al back in and Al would play more solos and we'd add more guitar overdubs and and, and so on and so on. And we riding on a, a little bit of a, a crest of a wave, I, I used to say the crest of a ripple, um, we, we we were so confident. Um, we just felt that, you know, we could do anything we wanted and that's what we did. And those sessions were the most fun and was, you know, the, some of those 12 inches now are some of our best work, I feel.
0: So that's very unique. So I was going to mention the 12 inches at the end, but um, to actually add additional bits onto the 12 inch as opposed to just remixing what's already there because i spoke to julian Mendelssohn and i asked him about that often the artist was in, involved and he, he mentioned well go west we take like a week to do a 12 inch which again is
1: incredible. <laughs> it was great working with, it was great working with julian i must say um, and i've seen or i've listened to julian talking about his career in retrospect and all the other fantastic recordings that he was involved in and bless him he did give us the credit i mean because everyone was working on those sessions julian as well the 12 inch of eye to eye has a delay on the background vocals which is completely julian's thing you know and it sounds great and he got a again right from the start you got a fantastic sound on all our triggered percussion samples um but bless him you know he gave us credit um as as you mentioned you know he might he often would say <laughs> again i'm not going to attempt an australian accent no, he would obviously oh, often often look at us as if to say what are you doing why are you doing this that's good enough isn't it you know and so on and so on so yes to him it might have seemed madness to take a week to do a 12 inch but we were having so much fun and uh and it was great to yeah to i'd be on the i'd be on the mic adding vocals i played congas on bits and pieces you know we'd add all kinds of stuff new sections and so on and so on and uh yeah it was it it was great and julian was a was a, a fundamental part of the team during those 12 inches but yeah everyone was contributing and just having an absolute blast
0: so I, It does answer the question because I, I did other Bangs and Crashes album I loved that because I loved the 12 inch mix and it was quite exciting I had so many 12 inch mixes on one album so it wasn't a case of this was a case of doing it as an album project as opposed to not knowing what singles you're going to release and just doing 12 inch mixes in case you've released SOS as a single kind of thing.
1: No it was um, a rather clever idea on the part of the label I think because uh, we are able to say that the Go West album was in the UK chart for over a year, but that was at least partly because with the success of the original version of the album, the label put us in the studio, allowed us to go into the studio to make these 12-inch mixes, to make the Bangs and Crashes album, and then I think to give it the same catalogue number so that it qualified as a continuation of sales of the original album.
0: Ah, okay,
1: that's clever. I think that's what what they they had in mind. I might be wrong about the catalogue number, but certainly it kept a version of this album in the chart for, for much longer than it might otherwise have, have been yes, there.
0: Yes, because it does have all the same tracks and a couple of the different ones, but all the tracks are there, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Were we involved in the choice of single? Well, going back to a number of things I've said earlier in, the, in our chat, we wrote Call Me as the answer to this response we were getting from labels that they didn't hear a single, despite the fact that we had We Close Our Eyes. I'm not sure which of the other songs we had, although SOS would have been a very different animal before we started working on it in the studio and it and the tempo was changed and the bass line was added and so on and so on. So we wrote Call Me, and that was the song that finally got us through the record company door. It was a song that they obviously felt was an obvious single. But when the album was completed. Though they felt that that was the obvious single, they didn't, they were concerned that the first release from our album might possibly get lost in the shuffle with all the other releases so for reasons best known to themselves they invited Richard and me to choose the first single from the album on the basis that Call Me would be the second single and as we've already discussed Richard and I felt most strongly about We Close Our Eyes uh, of all the songs on the album so we chose We Close Our Eyes and, and it got to number five in the UK charts so that was you know we were kind of vindicated and it, you know I, even now I still it's got a muscle, it's got an energy about it and, an, and I feel an interesting lyric although we were working with some friends of ours called the quick another duo signed to a and m at the time and they demoed don't look down with us actually and a version of we close our eyes and at the time i guess when we had a version of the song and it was called i need your love as i said i need your love you know in that chorus section and i guess the Quick being very competent and, and successful pop writers. When Richard and I announced that we were going to change the title of the song because we thought it was a more interesting, less obvious theme, they said we were mad. Don't change that. What are you doing? You know, you're mad. It's it's fine as it is. And obviously, We Close Our Eyes is not as immediately obvious a lyrical theme. But yeah, we, we stuck our chins out and got our way. And the rest is history
0: yeah cause it stands out as a title doesn't it more than i need your love
1: certainly that was our yeah. thought you know we're yeah wanting to just not be too obvious but by the time we got to uh, the dancing on the couch album our desperation not to be obvious kind of bit us in the arse.
0: you were <laughs> too far the other way yeah it's <laughs> incredibly rare for the record company saying "Come on you guys choose the single that's that's i wouldn't think that'd be yeah. very common
1: yeah, it's, as I say, I think they had this odd idea in their minds that you know if they put "Call Me Out" as the first single and it didn't get the attention they wanted it to get, then then the album might not be successful. I don't know what they were thinking, but uh, as you say, that was that was the reasoning that was presented to us. And as you say yourself, I can't really see any other reason why they would have invited us to choose our first single than that.
0: But you have indicated because you you were right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although of course, you know, I think the the sales team might have had something to do with that. You know, obviously we weren't the people making people buy the singles and we got a a decent budget for um the video before we close our eyes. It's funny because just the other day uh, there was a re-screening of a TV documentary about top pop videos of the 80s mm. and there's a little bit of uh, interview Richard and I talking about the process of making the video before we close our eyes but then David Grant I know David uh, not so I haven't spoken to him for a long time but we knew him back in the day we wrote together and so on and David Grant commented on we close our eyes videos saying that it was very obviously a video that had been made on a low budget, which I thought was hilarious because it cost 125,000. <laughs> that video, a and cream uh, as well. Yeah. Which is, exactly. Which was, and, and the, as I've said many times previously, that video cost more than the entire recording process of, of um, this album that we have been discussing, £50,000 more than the whole album cost to record and to mix. So, yeah, David was was not as well informed as he might have been. And it's
0: hugely memorable. It did help sell the song, didn't it, the Im- images?
1: Yeah, yeah. Although, of course, you know, again, it was my first experience of being in front of a camera and uh and godly and cream were very smart and and got performances in inverted commas out of richard and myself that you know they knew what they were doing and they were very aware of our lack of experience but i do remember playing um a rough edit of it to a friend of mine and his girlfriend before anyone else had seen it and i played it to them and his girlfriend said well that's not going to work <laughs> so she obviously was a lot less impressed with my on-screen persona than than, than uh, other people were later.
2: <laughs> I'm tired of playing hide and seek.